Welcome to Just Think, the podcast. The podcast where we don't want to tell you what to think. We just want to encourage you to do it. We are three friends that came from across the political spectrum who were tired of partisan politics and were alarmed at what we saw happening in our country, including the growing political divide. But we found as we challenged ourselves to recognize our own biases, to put them aside, we were absolutely united in our pursuit for the truth. And that's why we started this podcast to share the conversations we were having around that pursuit and to invite you into our conversation. To encourage you to feel free to ask questions. Search for the answers yourself to say what you think. That's right, because as we like to say, diversity of thought, ideas, and beliefs are welcome here. Asshats are not. (laughs) (laughs) All are welcome as long as you just think. our 50th episode. We can't believe it's been 50 episodes. This is Holly. And Amy. And Kristen. And we are not alone today. We are so happy to be back with our, now we can call him friend, Dr. McCullough, <laughs> who was a great inspiration. If you've listened to our podcast, I hope you've already heard our interview with him several months back. We'll certainly link you back to it so you can hear it if you didn't. If you don't know who Dr. McCullough is, it's either because you've been living under a rock yes. or, <laughs> or you haven't been listening to our podcast. <laughs> you haven't been listening to us. Or you're just now awakening to what might be happening. Perhaps you signed up for the vaccines and the boosters and now you've got COVID and you're like, what is going on? And you're starting to be one of the many who are waking up to what has been going on over the last year. We have two guests, Dr. McCullough and his friend, best-selling author, John Leake with us today. And I wanna give you a quick rundown before I really, I wanna dive straight into this with them. I know we all do so much we wanna hear from them about, but let me just point you, first of all, they have a website, couragetofacecovid.com. We'll link it with our link so you can go straight to it to get their new book, The Courage to Face COVID-19, Preventing Hospitalization and Death, while battling the biopharmaceutical complex. Now, I will tell you really quickly, this book is the story of doctors who developed that safe and effective, I know I used it, early treatment for COVID-19, and the battle that ensued with the biopharmaceutical complex that was trying to suppress it. And I would argue, and I'm sure you guys talk about this in the book, I think it was even beyond biopharmaceutical complex. They had a lot of help from mainstream media and our government. Now, you might remember, I first noticed Dr. McCullough when there was a YouTube video where he explains his perspective as one of the most peer-reviewed physicians in his field, as someone who was seeking early treatment, knowing that If this disease gets down the road, it's gonna be harder to treat. He and other physicians around the globe were looking for treatments, found some repurposing drugs and other supplements to treat COVID, keep people out of hospitals and certainly to prevent death. But very quickly, we saw there was great opposition to it. And not only did we see it, best-selling author John Leake saw it too, and he, I, I can't wait to hear, John, how you brought your skill set to this table and how you two were connected. So let's start there. How did you guys find each other? Um, I'm a true crime author. I've written a couple of conventional true crime books. One was about a serial, an international 
serial murder, one of the only international serial murders that the FBI has documented. He actually got on a plane in Europe and flew to Los Angeles and kept going on this on the serial spree. And then I wrote a book about a missing person, a young guy disappeared in the Alps, and it was a mystery of what happened to him. And it kind of went down a very deep, dark uh, rabbit hole that I went down. And my experience in researching and writing true crime um, had a strong forensic medical component. Both, both stories required that I hang out with pathologists, I actually spent a lot of time at the Vienna Institute of Forensic Medicine, where I even did some translation work for a pathologist. So I became kind of adept at the medical uh, component of crime. Um, it's sort of an interpretive framework. Um, so when SARS-CoV-2 arrived, I happened to be in the United States in my native Dallas at the time. And I I believe like you ladies quickly perceived that the official policy response, um, it just didn't make sense. It's the easiest way to describe it. There are a number of assertions and representations from our federal health authorities, from people you would see on the mainstream media that, that just didn't ring true to me. So I, I thought there's something going on here within criminal law. It, it, it seems to have elements of fraud, and then when I began to realize that early treatment was early treatment possibilities and trying these repurposed drugs, supplements, and kind of anything to help people from getting much sicker, it seemed to me that, that there was a sort of active campaign to suppress anything that could help people. My first reaction to that was just sort of bafflement, like why on earth? I mean, we have this foreign enemy that has just come to our shores and our, and our public health people are saying it's unassailable. You can't fight it. You just have to shelter in place. So that was kind of my entry into this. I, I quickly realized I would need to find a top medical authority, someone who really understands medicine, not a dilettante like me, um, to help me to, to pursue my investigation. So I discovered that Dr. McCullough only lived about two miles from my house in Dallas. So it was a, it was a happy coincidence. So I contacted him and I, to my amazement, um, he was very receptive. We met, we had some interviews and then we decided to do a book together exactly a year ago. Now it's truly exactly a year ago. I contacted him on May the 18th, 2021. Yeah. That's so cool. Oh my gosh. Wow. Celebrate that with you guys. Wow. That's so fortuitous. And that you lived two miles from each other. Oh my gosh. Yeah. But, but so then you decide, you meet, you know that you're like-minded in terms of, you know, something's off and you, and you, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you felt other people should know and be made aware, right? The, the most notable um, event was um, I invited him to an interview um, in, a, in a really nice film studio, which again, another happy coincidence, the studio was about 500 yards from his place of work. It's it really strange. I mean, you know, it's hard not to think that maybe all of this was kind of meant to be. Uh -huh. um, so oh, yeah. he, he, he um, you know, comes down, sits down in the studio chair, 
We've got a film crew there that just fires the the lights or you know lights camera action boom, and Dr. McCullough just he just starts talking about his experiences and observations and how he brought his knowledge to bear on this question. And I remember after he left and walked to work, um, the film uh, director said, we don't need to make a single cut. I mean, like, I don't have to edit this thing. This is the easiest piece of work I've ever, we just release the entire uncut interview to the world and, and let the world listen to this, to this fine doctor who, who cares about humanity. So we released the video and I would say within three hours, YouTube took it down. Mm -hmm. So that's when I felt that I myself had, you know, entered the matrix. Um, <laughs> um, you know, like, you know, when are the guys in the black suits kind of speaking and, you know, monotone going to just show up and say, guys like Dr. McCullough can't talk about this stuff. I mean, that's the way it, it, it felt to me. And, and so that, that kind of entering the twilight zone with my first interview with Dr. McCullough really caused me to, to, to double down on my investigation. It's a funny thing when you start trying to suppress people, you know, it, all, it almost awakens further curiosity and like, yeah. okay, well, you know, I was intrigued, but now I'm really wondering, yeah. you know, what on earth is going on here? So, yeah, that's how we embarked on this adventure. Well, Dr. McCullough, we know you to be, I think what people may not know about you if they've never interacted with you directly, your heart is clearly to us so set on helping others get this information, be empowered to know what to do to save people's lives. And frankly, at this point, perhaps to even save our country, right? Like to, so that the, the freedom of information is out there that is needed. You said yes to John pretty quickly, kind of like you said yes to us when we asked. Sure, let's get it. It was easier to say yes to you, ladies, than it was for me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Dr. McCullough, tell us from your perspective, you know, John, and by the way, we should, we should say John has written bestsellers. Your first book, John, Entering Hades, The Double Life of a Serial Killer, was a New York Times Sunday book review editor's choice. And Men's Vogue called that book one of the best books of 2007. And certainly there, it even inspired the, uh, the Infernal Comedy, which starred John Malkovich. So, I mean, you have had your own success story, certainly pre, you know, before kind of coming onto the scene with what you're doing now in terms of getting the information out about, about COVID-19. But, but Dr. McCullough, why did you say yes? Was it because he was two miles down the road? <laughs> you know, I've learned uh, over the course of this journey to really act on my instincts. You know, I was introduced, I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I'm a practicing internist and cardiologist. I'm trained in epidemiology in academic practice in Dallas, Texas. I go to a big academic medical center uh, and have office hours and see patients, you know, receive calls and do all the typical doctor's duties. But through COVID-19, I've been thrown into the limelight with uh, historic US Senate testimony in November of 2020, Texas state Senate uh, testimony in, in March of 2021. And it was around the time that John uh, reached out to me was uh, I think probably my very first explosive uncut video, which was with Tucker Carlson. And when I went on with Tucker, uh, I was so alarmed with 
what had transpired in the conversation. I'll never forget, I was in the limo on the way back and I called Senator Johnson. I, I said, I just wanna let you know it, it was explosive. And, and I think everything is out there. I think for the first time I had articulated to the nation that I thought the suppression of early treatment was intentional, that it was happening at multiple levels. It was intentional in order to prepare the population for mass vaccination. In fact, the promotion of fear, suffering, hospitalization and death was intentional. And that's where John comes in uh, because when there's intent and then there's harm like hospitalization or worse death, that constitutes a crime. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, can we ask you about, uh, I, I, I do wanna play a clip and I wanna get your, your, your impressions of it. Just to recap, we and the book goes through this, right? That that you, Dr. McCullough, and physicians all around the globe, right? We're saying, let's go in and let's treat this. You know, vaccines great. Like if we can develop something that works, awesome. But we have COVID here now. Mm -hmm. So how do we treat it now? And we saw the suppression of that. And certainly Dr. Fauci and the NIH being uh, the National Institutes of Health, being some that were seen very focused, not on treatment on this particular vaccine. And certainly when the administrations flipped and we got the Biden administration in, then it was really full force into that vaccine, right? Um, recently in a Senator, uh, Senator Kennedy, actually John Kennedy asked Dr. Fauci in a Senate testimony, do you think you handled this correctly? And he asked him repeatedly, I wanna play what his response was. And then I wanna hear from both of you, what's your take on what Dr. Fauci says here? What would you do differently today? Right now, I would hope that we would get many more people vaccinated. No, but what would you do when you did it, in hindsight, if you knew then what you know today? It depends on when we got the vaccine. Do you mean before the availability of vaccine? Before the ability of vaccine, when we had no other situation, I would try to protect people by making sure that they masked and they kept themselves uh, separated from this congregate indoor settings. That's what I would do in the absence of a vaccine. But right now, I think it's important looking forward. We still only have 66% of the total population vaccinated and less than half of those are boosted. I think we can approach what we are likely gonna be seeing on our seeing now with an increase in surges with the possibility of a surge in the fall and winter. One of the real things we can all do as a nation is pull together and try to get our people vaccinated and those who are eligible to be boosted, boosted. That would solve a lot of the problems that you're referring to. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. McCullough? <laughs> you're shaking your head, no. A complete oblivion to the issue at hand. The issue at hand is sick people who need to get through the illness and prevent hospitalization and death. Yeah, you can see the, his approach. His approach, and he's operating under the assumption there is no treatment. This is unassailable. We have to stay in lockdown in fear. And he's also operating under the assumption that the vaccines actually work. Right. That they're actually effective and safe. So you can see that his entire approach is completely flawed and incorrect. And Does John, he know how to read? Like, can you read studies? But when was this interview, Holly? Was this not like 
in the past week. I mean, yes, I, I, it, it was it was in senate it was senatorial testimony in the last week with Senator John. Last year, this was not six months no, ago. No, this was just but, recent. This was recent, and so. I want to ask John from your your perspective as an author, as someone who looks at criminal, I'm not yes. saying, I'm saying as someone who looks at criminal behavior and activity, and I'm not, I'm, I mean, I think Fauci's a criminal, but that doesn't, I'm not telling you to say yes. I'm saying, what do you notice? What do you notice, John, about this scenario? Um, doc, Dr. Fauci has maintained this script from the from the very beginning. I mean, um, so that that is the notable thing on the timeline. I mean, if you're trying to figure out motive, um, and it's a very complex reality um, in, in which it's an evolving situation, you have doctors like Dr. McCullough and his colleagues that are actually on the ground studying this, a, a rational um, and, and logical response to the situation would be, well, let's see what people are discovering. Um, let's let's try and establish communication. I, I liken this to a military situation. I studied military history as well. If you're a general sitting in the Pentagon and you have um, uh, the United States Marine Corps is occupying Fallujah, Iraq, and is trying to deal with an insurrection group that's very capable militarily, you would want to talk to a Marine lieutenant who's, who's there, who's in Fallujah. Like, what are these guys doing? What are you learning about the enemy? What is their motive? How do they, where are they getting their weapons? How do they act? What, how do they behave? Fauci has never been remotely interested in learning anything about this from the doctors in the field. And I think that's very illuminating. That's very revealing of how this whole thing has been mishandled with clearly intent. And, and we can talk about what their motive and what their intention was, but that recent testimony that he, he gave is, is just absolute further confirmatory evidence of what we present in our book. And it is a crime. Um, doc, Dr. Fauci is, is a key perpetrator in a massive crime. Um, the other thing that I, I find notable about it is, um, what is it about high level politicians that they just, they, we say they fail up. Mm. Um, it, it's like the pandemic response was a total failure. The United yeah. States in terms of, of, of grave illness and mortality, it's, it's the highest of all of the you know, industrialized wealthy nations. It, it's the worst. So it's like somebody who says, um, well, you know, I'm your, I'm your restaurant manager and the place is, is in shambles. Everyone's left and we're bankrupt. Um, can you give me a promotion? I understand you're, you're you know, you're... I mean, <laughs> And, but this, this, this is, I say that and it sounds like I'm just being a, you know, a smart ass, but I mean, it's really, it's really, it's really true. I mean, if you, if you reach a certain level in Washington, performance doesn't really matter. So what is that telling us? It's not really about public health. What, what he is doing is not, it's, it's not, if, if we're to evaluate it, he, he's not really in, in the public health business. He, he is in the vaccine business. Mm -hmm. Yep. yep. That, that's case. the only thing he said was the vaccine. Not, nothing else. As, as though 
you, you have an immensely complex situation as, as though there's one solution to an immensely, and the solution doesn't work. Well, one thing I said in the beginning, just like Dr. McCullough, you know, one of your, you know, eye-opening things was, was when you were like, well, let, what can we do to treat, treat this? There's never been a disease in history where you just say, wait till you get sick or wait till the vaccine comes around. And a lot of the arguments in the beginning when I was just questioning it because it was so quick and they were about to roll out and everybody was like, just get the vaccine. I'm like, okay, they're rolling it out slowly. What are you going to do if your mom gets the, gets the illness now? Just wait. And that's what the doctors are still telling people. There's, or they're not telling them anything. They say, just go home. And, or the, because they're taking Fauci's advice, just get vaccinated, just get boosted. It's absolutely ridiculous. And it's, it's like the scientific method has been thrown out the window. It's like, they don't even care. And it is, it, it isn't public health. Have they even talked about, you know, losing weight, getting vitamin D, staying healthy? Have you heard anything about public health? No, it's all about illness. And we've never like protected everybody who's healthy or quote protected, you know? Yeah. Oh. So, so the cases are going up. I mean, the, the cases of COVID are going up the more shots you've had. Yeah. So how is this still the advice that they are giving? I just. It's, so, so this, this, this is what was so notable in my, in my first interview with Dr. McCulley exact, exactly a year ago. I wanted to know, you know, what is the convention, the, the standard of you know, late 20th century, early 21st century medical care. And, and this was what was just so shocking for me and the video crew was, um, you know, what Dr. McCullough described, which is, you know, we, we treat illness. This is when someone is getting sick and it, it appears that there's a progression that you can plot on a sort of probability graph. You know, you, you take the person's age and you, you establish a risk profile. And then you can say with a certain probabil probability, if untreated, this person could get really sick and land in hospital. So Dr. McCullough talked about this in the interview, and maybe he could mention, you know, mention a few words about that now. I mean, what, Dr. McCullough, what is the convention when you, when you see that, okay, this thing could get serious? Like, well, how do we, what do we do? Well, you know, in, keep in mind, it's an infectious disease. So it's not, you know, a malignancy or, or cancer. It's an acute infectious disease. So for all acute infectious diseases, uh, we have a, a principle, and that is the time to administration of the first antimicrobial and then other supportive therapy. So that's what exists for pneumococcal pneumonia and atypical pneumonia. Uh, let's take somebody with a staph infection at home. Uh, you know, we wouldn't let it sit at home for two weeks until they develop staphylococcal toxic shock syndrome and be admitted to the hospital. We wouldn't uh, take a community-acquired pneumonia, for instance, and let it brew at home for two weeks until there's a, a pulmonary abscess or empyema or respiratory failure. So this principle is true. And uh, uh, John and I are working on some fine points, and he asked me to go back to the Joe Rogan interview that I gave in December. That's after I was on with... Um, with the Just Think podcast. And, uh, and I had to find a couple specific things. And one of the things I found in the Joe Rogan interview is exactly that. I was telling Joe about the time to the first administration of therapy as a principle. And uh, in fact, I work with the Italians, uh, Dr. Fazio and colleagues, and we published a, a paper in the Medical Monitor, a peer-reviewed journal, demonstrating that the time to first administration of treatment in an organized protocol works. 
And in fact, in Italy, we were not using hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin-based protocols. There's other ways to do it. But the point is people who develop COVID-19, they need medicines to reduce the intensity and, and, and severity and duration of symptoms. And by that mechanism, that reduces hospitalization and death. And if we do that, we actually reduce the period of infectivity and the opportunities for spread. So when patients get progressively sick, there's a lot of panic phone calls, family gets involved, home care people get involved, paramedics, taxi drivers, Uber drivers, and every hospitalization of which we've had 10 million in America has been a super spreader event. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Isn't that something? Well, it was just very interesting to me when, um, you know, when they had the white, the, at the White House, the press corps, you know, dinner that they always do. And um, you had to be vaccinated to come. And then and they made a big deal. Hey, even your Fox News people are, are vaccinated that are coming. And <laughs> sure enough, as soon as that was over, within three to five days, there were the number of people who caught COVID at supposedly from this event. It was very interesting all completely vaccinated. So again, to go back to the clip we But played, thank goodness they were because it could have been so much worse. <laughs> it's so laughable. It's so laughable. And, and, and the, the, the scary thing about this, and I know Dr. Malone and, and Dr. Nicole, you've talked about the mass psychosis of people to not see this. Like, listen, there's this joker who has been in charge of the government's <laughs> response to the pandemic is now saying, oh, but if you just go get vaccinated, we need more people vaccinated, we can do something about this. Oh, and if you mask up and also spread out, remember, because even Fauci even mentions that again, right? He was like, well, that that's what we'd be doing if we didn't have a vaccine. They are literally- Nothing has changed. Nothing has evolved in their line of thinking. No. It's insane. I have to ask you too, I am sure in your book, Maybe, do you mention Bill Gates in your book? I'm just curious. Dr. Gates, did you know that he is a medical doctor? I didn't know he was a medical doctor. I'm just kidding. He is not a medical doctor. <laughs> okay, so we're on our podcast interviewing a medical doctor in the field of treating COVID. One of the most peer-reviewed doctors around in the world, Dr. McCullough. We're doing that on our podcast. Let me tell you what CNN's doing. Anderson Cooper's interviewing Bill Gates. I want you to listen. <laughs> you'd have two, you'd have two uh, vaccinations and then two booster shots. Is that right? That's right. And you know, for people over you know fifty or sixty, uh, they'll probably have to be boosted every six months until we get even better vaccines. So I've been trying to figure this out for myself. But I assume you know the answer to this, so I'll just ask you. Um, when do you get boosted again? I mean, now that you've had it, you know, I've had it around the same time. I've only gotten three shots total, only been boosted once. I, I guess we have immunity for a little while, or, but when do you decide to get boosted again? Uh, yeah, so an infection where you'll get a high viral load would be like vaccination. Uh, but, you know, to be safe, every six months, uh, you're probably going to be vaccinated. As we get more data, they might even make that shorter for people who are, who are you know, say 60 or over 70, where the where they, duration seems to be a bit lower. Um, so we're in for ongoing vaccination to stay up. You would add two, you'd add two. I mean, okay. I think it said you, to stay health, absolutely healthy. Absolutely or, or absolutely safe. 
Safer well, I think it's safer healthy because I, I I have the captions on the video, <laughs> but. But what do you guys think about Bill Gates? And well, then again, me, this was this week. Well, <laughs> let me just say, you know, one of the reasons why I kind of sit in front of my degrees yeah. is that it took me a total of 17 years from the time I graduated from high school before I was fully baked as a doctor. And then it took decades to amass nearly 700 peer-reviewed publications, including I published in New England Journal of Medicine, Lancet, uh, all the best journals. And I don't care how much money he has. He can have, he can have the entire world supply of money. He can't have what I have. He can right. never have, and Anderson Cooper can't either. And that is an understanding of the human body and an understanding of human medicine and an understanding of what these products are. They are the synthetic genetic code for the dangerous and potentially lethal spike protein that was manipulated intentionally in a biosecurity lab level four in Wuhan, China. Now, there is no way that repeated injections over and over again, every six months or more frequent, can make the body healthier. It's impossible no. for the genetic code for the Wuhan spike protein to improve human health. Impossible. And I'll stand by that statement from here to eternity. Mm. I, I mean, how can you just say, hey, this isn't working. Let's just give you some just more. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. And we'll give it to you, you know, more often. Yeah. Maybe that'll work. I just don't. So, and, so, so I, 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 I think that this is you, you, you ladies are good at finding evidence. I mean, of course, as, as we, as, as we discussed, the evidence is so out in the open is, is it, it just absolutely hits you in the head with the tire iron. I mean, these guys have, have not changed their, their tune. They've not modified their message you know, by a half of a degree. It's just the same. The vaccine is the solution. Well, what if the vaccine doesn't really confer immunity? We'll just keep getting vaccinated, get, get boosted. You know, it may be that instead of getting boosted every six months, you get boosted every three months. But you yourself just got it, even though you were boosted. Well, it just means that we need to get boosted more. I mean, th this isn't, it's funny that Bill Gates, I mean, you obviously don't make that much dough by being a dummy, but this, <laughs> this is it's just childish. Um, it's like it's like somebody who has enormous intellectual ability, but because of some sort of quirk of, of the of his emotional life, he, he's he's pursuing obsessively an, an idea that just just does not meet basic standards of logic. But but because he's achieved something in another arena, um, I, I you know information technology and 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 is such a success, people are listening to him because of his success in, in in another arena. I mean, it would be like, hey John, you've written a couple of true crime books. Um, what do you think about the new Boeing seven you know Dreamliners, the aeronautical properties of its wings? It's like well. <laughs> I mean, why are you asking me about that? Um, but what I think is is notable is that is that Bill Gates he, and Anderson Cooper. I mean, again, it's like, are you a journalist? 
No. Or are you just, are you just um, a sort of a, a mouthpiece? Do you receive a script prior to the, you know, the news reading and then, and then just, just simply read the script because that that's what it looks like, which is very disappointing to me because in his youth, he was a very daring do yes. investigative guy that would go out in the field and figure out what's going on. But I'm sorry, I digress. The point of this conversation between Bill Gates and, and, and Anderson Cooper is just like your tape of Fauci a moment ago. It is just further confirmatory evidence. These guys are not in the public health business. They're mm -hmm. in the vaccine business. Mm -hmm. and, it, and, it, and it doesn't matter whether the vaccine actually works or not. I mean, Anderson Cooper might as well have been interviewing the owner of a car dealership yes. and, and saying, you know, well, what about public transportation? What about how do we solve the transportation needs better, more effective um, more rational tr transportation. And he just says, well, come down to my dealership. You, you just need to come buy, you just need to come to my dealership and, and buy a new car every six months. Yeah. What if your car doesn't work very well? Well, well then buy another one every three months. I don't see there's a difference here. But I have to interject medically that you know, an acceptable vaccine product, the minimum acceptance standards would be at least 50% protection, at least for a year for something significant. The vaccines have not achieved that. All experts agree they don't last a year. There's no medical problem that we get again and again and keep taking a vaccine again and again. We don't do that for pneumococcal disease or meningococcal disease or tetanus or pertussis or any of these other diseases. So uh, they are in, in basically in outer space when it comes to vaccinology. And I think one of the problems is, is that what you're seeing is absurdity. And what I've, I've said is that when you see absurdity, that is diagnostic of the false narrative. There is a false narrative that the solution to this problem is continually taking genetic vaccines very frequently as if it's gonna solve the problem. That is diagnostic of the false narrative. It's absurd to keep doing this. And I, I think that video, I'm glad you played it. I think it's going to go down in history. So here you have a reporter who was, in a sense, imperceptive enough to take three vaccines himself. He's, he's young and he's thin. He's not going to have any problem with COVID. Then you have somebody who's older, you know, a bit overweight. He's taken four of them. I mean, think about the personal mistakes they've made in doing that, the lack of critical thinking, they have the foreign genetic code for the spike protein in their body. Now you can't get it out. It looks like it looks like it's permanent. It's not working. So their solution is to take more of it personally. I can tell you, they can go ahead and have my dose. I'll volunteer it to them. <laughs> Me, too. Well, and I wanted to say two things. Like when we talk about, I love when you said you don't make that much dough being a dummy, but the thing is Bill Gates is not a dummy because he is like one of the biggest financial contributors to the who and to these pharmaceutical companies. And it, you may not see it right straight, straight on the sheet, but it's all around about, right? So he's speaking from power, right? So that's not from, you know, him being, you know, and I don't think that's smart at all, but that's smart for him financially. And when you, all you care about is power, right? But then when you're talking about the 50% efficacy, I wanted to ask you this, uh, Dr. McCullough, because, you know, is it Peter Marks? 
just approved the emergency use authorization for kids where they said that they wouldn't they that they didn't care whether it's 50% or less because I, I don't even know what the stupid reason was because it was stupid um and this is for our kids that i mean it's ridiculous and like the mortality rate for kids was like 0.01% and that's on the mm uh, i think that's on the cdc mmr i just printed it off today right americans um, should reject our FDA officials, when they uh, uh, change acceptance standards in order to allow investigational products to be widely used, they should actually reject papers. You know, in, in JAMA recently, there's a paper by FDA officials stating that COVID-19 vaccination is the new normal. Our FDA doesn't have any place in making that declaration. The FDA is supposed to be safeguarding Americans uh, against unsafe drugs and products. That's their principal role is to make sure there's safety in the medicinal and drug supply. Do you know that the lawyers for the FDA wanted to block the Pfizer regulatory documents from American eyes for 55 years? The lawyers for the FDA wanted to do that. And when it's released, Pfizer knew about 1,223 deaths that occurred within 90 days of taking their product. Pfizer should have pulled their COVID vaccine from the market after 50 deaths, Americans should be appalled. Yeah, they, they pulled Abbott, actually Abbott Labs voluntarily pulled, stopped their you know production of the baby formula, right? From four reports, two deaths, four reports, they found that there was no causation and the FDA still, they may have approved it now, but it's still not back there. It blows my mind, blows my mind. Now, I, I appreciate that Abbott Labs did that based on four reports, just to be safe. We don't want tainted milk, you know, with our to our babies. But yet they turn a blind eye to the million, over million adversary reports that have been reported. OK, it, it, is, it blows my mind. And they just immediately say, oh, it's just correlation or it, it may not be even verified and we can't prove causality. And I just let me say that I'm going to give another standard with the rotavirus vaccine, which did land kids in the hospital with dehydration. There was about 15 cases of intussusception or a twisting of the bowel, and uh, it was pulled off the market. Uh, causality does not have to be approved, does not have to be proven, does not. If the deaths occur within a reasonable time frame of administration, and most times it's arbitrarily decided at 30 days, it's gone, the product is gone. There is no causality assessment. I've been involved in some of these product recalls. Causality will be something that can be argued, you know, years down the road, but it's simply the fact that these deaths occur, we cannot allow Americans to be harmed. And that is actually a giant crime that's being committed. And I hope, yeah, because the, I just looked at VAERS the other day, just like clicked on a few. There was a 16-year-old that died the same day of the second Pfizer shot. How can, how can you not at least um, maybe just investigate that? Maybe well, like Kristen, consider the possibility? Kristen, I don't know if Ryan Cole told you this, but we were traveling across Florida, the panhandle of Florida together with uh, Chris Wark of uh, Crispy Cancer. Chris is a big uh, social media influencer. Yes, and right. we stopped at a Dunkin' Donuts and of course, Ryan Cole, kind of the heartthrob of the COVID-19 early treatment, immediately uh, some women uh, you know, see him and they want pictures. And then one of the ladies said, Dr. McCullough, I gotta tell you, I took my father about six months ago to get a vaccination. 
and he was a senior citizen. I was concerned about him. I thought I was doing the right thing. He got his shot and he died in the passenger seat as I drove him home. He died in my car and she, she's forever changed. She has this on her mind. It's really, it was an incredible testimonial. And Chris and, and, and Ryan and I just basically looked at each other like, you can't make this up. No. These are just coming forward. They would have called that a COVID death if you had COVID and left the hospital, but you weren't there for COVID, but you just test positive just randomly. They would have called that a COVID death, but they're not going to call that a vaccine injury. Insane. It's insane. Um, I wanted to, I know we, before we hit record, we were kind of talking to you, John, about like the sociology behind all of this and how yes. some people can see this very clearly and others can't. And, you know, when I was listening to those clips of Fauci and Bill Gates, it's like, that's the definition of, of propaganda, right? It's like when you just repeat the lie over and over and over and you don't sway from it, you just repeat it, repeat it. The masses tend to believe it simply because, you know, you just don't stray from your position. So I think it's just interesting, like we were talking about, is that, is that what you would define like as propaganda and what's happening here is they're just not straying from it. So therefore people are believing it. Yeah. So one of the things that Dr. McCullough do and and our book is, you know, we, we try to delineate, you know, what is an honest to goodness, you know, good faith and attempt to discover what is going on with this problem. So you have Dr. McCullough and Dr. Zelenko and a number of um, Dr. George Fareed in California, and they're trying to figure out, you know, what is this thing that we're dealing with? Who does it affect? Who really gets into trouble with it? How do we protect them? Distinguish that from just straight up, straight away from the outset in March, this, this messaging even though by their own admission, it's a, it's a novel infectious agent, meaning you don't know very much about it. You're, you're still trying to figure it out. The messaging was identical from the outset to where it is today. These guys are saying the same thing today that they were saying in, in early March of 2020. Um, so it, it is a massive, relentless um, never ending and never modifying propaganda campaign. Propaganda is a major feature of this. And there, there is a chapter in the book where Dr. McCullough and his colleagues who spoke before the U.S. Senate on November the 19th, 2020, they're attacked in the New York Times by the minority witness in the hearing. So imagine you're reading the New York Times and you read this op-ed by the minority witness. So you you didn't attend the hearing and most of the people who read that op-ed did not watch the C-SPAN video. Their only, their only understanding of what transpired in, in the US Senate hearing because the media isn't reporting it, social media isn't reporting it. So the representation of the hearing was made by a minority witness in an op-ed in the New York Times. And it is a straight up, just vile propaganda piece. And that, again, I read that and I thought, why is a ranking university academic doctor, why has he gotten in the business of writing propaganda? <laughs> um, and, and, and I mean that, in a, I mean, that is a, 
that, I mean, I think that's a serious question that, you know, that we try to address. This is not an accident. He was incentivized. He was incentivized to write a propaganda hatchet piece against these, these um, very searching, they're, they're, they're not getting anything. They actually paid their own plane ticket to go to Washington to answer a senator's invitation. It's, it is a searching, um, motivated by the Hippocratic Oath testimony. And this, this guy completely misrepresents it. So that's when I realized this is a massive propaganda operation that's going on. It is a massive psyop. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and why? So that then becomes an area of inquiry in the book. Why are, are, are these, these powerful institutions waging a propaganda campaign. And, and, and I, you know, I don't want to give away the whole, whole book, but I, I believe that we figure it out. Ooh, as, okay. I mean, as you come to, and, I mean, and y'all are already on to it. I mean, you know, it's, a, it's, a, you've already caught the scent. I mean, we're not going to tell you anything you don't already have a pretty good idea of, but this was a, a, a highly planned, organized, orchestrated execution um, of, of public, of a major public policy issue with an enormous financial um, uh, nexus and that it was understood and planned years ago. And they have executed their plan and they continue to execute their plan. Although I think that more and more people are like you ladies, y'all are at the beginning sort of attuned to something really weird is going on here. I think more and more people are beginning to become attuned to, to this reality. Um, so with our book coming out, you know, we're hoping that the way we tell the story, you know, will enable more people to recognize what's been going on. Well, and we want to say too that when did the book come out, guys? I mean, it's just been recent. So, what when did the book officially launch? Um, about eight days ago. Yeah. So I know we're in about the first week, a little over the first week. So already, I was telling Dr. McCullough before we started. I mean, you guys already have five star reviews on there. I think exclusively on Amazon, five star reviews, which is great because, as you well know, someone else has tried to also tell some of the story and speak to the corruption of big pharma and Bill Gates and Dr. Fauci. And that was uh, Kennedy, right? Mm-hmm. And he wrote the book, The Real Dr. Fauci. I think I know the name of it, The Real Dr. Fauci. And, and that book, they do not allow reviews on that book on Amazon, even though it is a bestseller. And you guys are ranking number one in your, in, in your category right now on Amazon as well. And I guess no one is, I guess the opposition is is not out in full force against you yet but you better take some screenshots they about to delete them here's the thing (laughs) i but i do want to ask this because i actually have two questions and i want to start with you dr mccullough i want our audience to know that you had nothing to gain you didn't you had at least i can't see i can't see i don't think you were trying to become a celebrity (laughs) i don't think you had any you and your wife were living a good life before all this happened what has this cost you to, to keep your Hippocratic oath and use your wisdom Great. and expertise to help America? What does it cost you? 
it's it's basically cost me my entire career. So it's, it cost me everything I work for. I mean, it, what's happened is extraordinary. And I think what's powerful in the book is the truth. You're hearing from doctors and it's not just me. There's a prominent doctors in France and New York State and, and Dallas, Texas and South Central California. Uh, there are suffering patients and family members. I mean, this book is a page turner and I think the real brilliance is to have a big league author like John Leake step up and use those authoring skills, which really other people in the field don't have. The, all, all the books are complimentary. You know, I've talked with Scott Atlas. He has a book about what happened in the White House. Scott actually genuinely believes that people we've talked about, he generally believes they have good intention, but he thinks there's a deep vein of incompetence that they clearly just can't analyze data. And if you notice, they never mention any data ever. Uh, you know, Peter Bregan thinks that it is a, a very much an integrated, carefully planned, orchestrated uh, operation. Uh, Pam Popper in her book uh, also believes that, that in fact, there's a complicity in the Diane Andrews and Pam Popper book is a complicity on what the federal response is. Peter Bregan is the worldwide uh, Bobby Kennedy is focusing on our National Allergy Immunology Branch Director as a singular focus. But what we're doing is that we're telling it from the doctor and the patient perspective. And I think that's what Americans can understand. Almost everybody's been touched by this illness and it's, it's heartbreaking. But, uh, you know, I personally, what, people have asked me if it's worth it. And what I've said is if I've helped one person, one person, it's worth it. Well, well, you've helped a hell of a lot more than one. You one have helped <laughs> literally thousands and thousands. And I have to say, Dr. McCullough, because you gave us hope in a time where we knew something was wrong. We knew that we needed to be healthy just to fight anything, right? So I think the three of us were aligned like, hey, let's make sure we're, our families are getting the vitamin D and that we're, we're healthy. We're not, you know, we're eating healthy. We're doing the right things. But when my, my 70 plus year old father has heart, has had heart disease and he was the one I was concerned about. And of course he said, I am not getting that vaccine. And if I die of this disease, I've lived a great life, the end, like I'm not doing it. And thank God he did it because with his heart history, I'm especially glad that he did not do it. He got COVID same time I did and got right on through it. Thanks. And he will tell you this. Thanks to your protocol and, 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 and the frontline doctor's protocol, we were empowered with information, but only because we looked for it and found you and found some of these other doctors and then thankfully found a doctor pre to prescribe the ivermectin here and a pharmacy to fill it. But I say all that to say, my dad managed to get his hands on a lot of this stuff. And he went to his hometown, a rural part of North Carolina and began driving to homes of sick people who'd been sick for seven to 10 days because their doctor told him to go home. And he was delivering the goods and they all recovered and they all thank him to this day. So you were the big stone in that, in that water that hit the water and created a ripple effect that empowered us so that we can help as many people as possible. And John, I have to believe that's your heart as well, because are you prepared for the backlash that you are probably going to see as a result of partnering with Dr. McCullough on the mission? Uh, I have uh, familiar as an observer 
um, with the behavior of, of the mob. Um, and it's, it's another psychological component of this. I mean, I know the way the mob acts. Um, it's worth kind of describing. Um, people um, who would have hesitation to behave in a certain aggressive or rude way if it's just one-on-one, -on -one, if they join together with a bunch of other people and they're animated by a, a feeling of self-righteousness, um, oftentimes you have a component of self-righteousness, a component of resentment, which is a very toxic emotion. You know, suddenly when groups join together, they feel emboldened to be very aggressive and very rude. Um, and the only way to, um, to, to, um, to deal with the mob is just, just to ignore them. It's not, I think it was Mark Twain who said, um, speaking at an individual level, but it applies to the aggregate of the mob. Ne never engage in argument with a fool. He'll lower you to his level and beat you from greater experience. Ah, I like that. Oh my gosh, I love that. That's so, you know, it's just like, we'll, we'll get mobbed. D Dr. McCullough, I mean, I, he did not ask me to do this. I became very interested in, in his personal journey and, and what he suffered. And, and I know I've studied history my whole life. Since I was a little boy, I grew up in a li library of history books. And um, you have these figures in history. I mean, going into Greek philosophy, Socrates, going into the Judeo-Christian um, uh, experience, Jesus of Nazareth. Galileo, um, uh, Copernicus. Um, what is it about someone who has an insight? He may not know everything, but, but he has an insight. But if he articulates his insight in a way that is perceived as threatening to an existing structure of, of, of power and, and, um, and, and money and financial interest, the guy that has the insight is oftentimes not thanked. Um, he's not thanked for his, his insight and, and sharing his insight. He's oftentimes persecuted. And one of the figures that looms large in our book, I lived in Vienna, Austria for many years. There's a, there was a doctor in Vienna, Austria who, who had an insight about um, when doctors examine patients, um, and this was particularly in, in, a, in a maternity ward setting where, where students at the University of Vienna Medical School, they're attending anatomy class. So this is 1848, 1847. They're attending anatomy class. They're doing um, dissections of, of corpses in anatomy class, and then they're going straight to a maternity ward to examine to perform gynecological examinations of pregnant women. And there's this enormous, within this maternity ward, there's this enormous rate of, of an infection, which, which can be fatal. It occurs shortly after childbirth. So this doctor and his doctor, his name was um, Dr. Semmelweis. He was a professor at the University of Vienna. He says, well, what if our students wash their hands with um, like a chlorinated lime preparation before they examine the women in the maternity ward. So they did this and, and he observed a rapid decline in incidence of this infection. 
So again, you ladies have to remember this is 1847. We didn't understand germs. Right. So it's a, it's a remarkable and very important observation in the history of medicine. It's very seminal observation for the whole germ theory of, of infection and disease. What is his reward? He's ridiculed, violently opposed, um, branded a quack, um, and, and um, ultimately just can't stand the psychological pressure of the situation where he knows he's right. He knows he could save lives, but his hygienic protocol is not being implemented. So he starts writing pretty aggressive letters to professors of medicine. And then they say, okay, you know, not only are you a quack, you're, you're, you're crazy, you're dangerous. So they actually put him in an insane asylum. Oh my um, gosh. So, and he dies in an insane asylum. So I, I mentioned that it's a little bit of a digression, but um, if you study history, what you learn is that people who actually have an insight and they're bold enough and they have the imagination to present it, oftentimes in history, they've been persecuted. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I began to perceive that Dr. McCullough um, is, is in many ways consistent with, with this, this thread that you see in, in, in human history. A lot of people forget Galileo spent the last, I think, 11 years of his life under house arrest. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so I, I, I think it was um, 400 years later that Pope John Paul II officially recognized that Galileo was correct. Oh my God. And the the office of the Inquisition was wrong to have arrested, tried him, and put him under house arrest for the rest of his life. I hope that Dr. I hope it won't take 400 years for Dr. McCullough to be vindicated. I think think it's actually happening already. Well, we, we think it is too, to some degree, right? Because there has been a subtle, slight little shift in some of the information that's slipping out because it's good listen the truth is like a lion right just let it go let it roar it's going to find its way out and 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 we're let me just play a quick clip for you if you guys don't mind real quick from gma (laughs) we couldn't believe this existed i'm be honest okay but this is on good morning america their medical correspondent talking about i think it was a lancet study you can correct me if i'm wrong dr mccullough the, the the new study that was talking about the fourth covid dose do we give a fourth COVID dose? Listen to her. She doesn't sound sold out on this. Take, take a listen. Uh, you got some new data on boosters. There's a okay. new published study out in Lancet, uh, the journal Lancet Infectious Disease, about the fourth dose and what happens to our antibody levels. It is not a surprise that they've released new data confirming that after the fourth dose of Pfizer or Moderna, that antibody levels rise significantly. They surge. Uh, in the several weeks after that dose. We've known that for a while, but here are the caveats. We don't know how long that lasts, number one. Um, And our immune response, remember, is not just about antibodies. It's about that T cell response also, which you can't really measure as well as just a pure antibody level. And it's about whether or not they're blocking or neutralizing antibodies to the variant that we're seeing. So uh, when people hear these headlines, 
they shouldn't be surprised. Yes, of course, you're going to get a, a surge in your antibody levels, but how long that lasts is the issue. And it's certainly not just about more boosting for everyone. People who have high antibody levels, there's the potential. I want to underscore the potential. We haven't seen any evidence of this, um, of this immune phenomenon known as tolerance, where if you already have high antibody levels and you get another booster, that your immune system can start to say, well, what what am I needed for? And can kind of start to shut down. Wow. So um, we, if you're in that category of people who the FDA and CDC is recommending to get a booster, 50 and over, 65 and over with a with a chronic medical condition, yes, by all means. But everyone else, don't think that more boosting is the answer. We don't know that that's the case yet. All right. That was important information. We Maybe. Do you think they were pooping in their pants while she was saying that? You think they were like, oh, 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 cut it, cut it, cut it. <laughs> you know, I, I, I have to tell you, as a, as, as a person who's now, you know, in the media, and I, I guess I'm going to go down in history, as John implies, one way or the other, um, I think we have to be able to look back at the words that we say and uh, get a sense of, uh, you know, where we on the right track or not. And you can sense that uh, what I was hearing in her voice was a sense of fairness. Now, uh, you know, she's trying to be fair to this idea of what are the unknowns. And uh, there are many unknowns. I mean, there are some self-evident self -evident statements. So for one is uh, we really don't know what the long-term safety concerns are with the vaccines because we haven't had a chance at the long term. We do now know that the genetic material and the spike protein generated from it lasts in the body for a very long time. So we don't know what the long-term implications of a long-acting genetic injection and spike protein are. That should be self-evident. We, we do not know the long-term implications on growth and development in children because it hasn't been studied over a long period of time. So you, you know these things should be, I really hope they're self-evident. People need to understand the gamble that they're taking. They're taking it without knowing these things, there's a gamble. Mm -hmm. and I published that in, uh, in the summer of 2020 in The Hill. And actually I wanted to ask uh, Amy and Kristen, you went to the North Carolina Physicians for Freedom seminar that we had actually in a beautiful, um, a beautiful setting, the governor's house. Um, in, in Chapel Hill. Can you just give me some feedback? What, what, was, what was the crowd thinking uh, when they, they heard the data as presented? I, I mean, I know my jaw was dropping and we were doing the um, live stream on your Instagram too. So if anybody wants to go back and check it, it's there. Um, but I, I, I mean, there were so many like just truth bombs, things that, you know, even though we listen right. to everything you say. say yeah, we do ahead. so much research. And so a lot of this stuff, you know, we've kind of heard before, but there were so many things in your presentation that day that we, we had, had not never heard. heard. So we know if we had never heard it, there were chances are many people in that room had really never heard it. So it was very like, I know you one thing, one thing that stands out to me was when you said how many doses they purchased in the beginning per person. Was it in Australia? Was it in wherever? What you told in Canada? Was it like seven and then fifteen or something? I mean, I'm, I may be wrong. Well, listen, I was just on with uh, with Irish colleagues earlier today, and uh, you know, most countries they've purchased five to seven years worth. So we're talking ten to fourteen doses already pre-purchased of the same of the, of the, of the same, same vaccine, and that variant is gone. 
So, so ladies, I, I think I think what Dr. McCullough just said it, it goes to 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 the heart of of, of the of this crime story, yeah, and, and the motive. Um, the the organizational structure of what we're what we're seeing with, for example, what Dr. McCullough just stated that these countries' national treasuries are taking down you know multiple years of supply of this product. That's taxpayer money. So that arrangement was made globally. The the, the business plan for this arrangement was submitted by the Gates Foundation and the um, World Economic Forum with its new institution, CEPI, the um, Center for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations. This, this private-public partnership in, in which a new vaccine would be developed and then the national treasuries of the world would then make immense you know, upfront investments, both in its development and in, in commitment, you know, purchasing commitments for the product. This partnership was put into place in 2017. So what we're seeing is it's just the very disciplined and orchestrated execution of a business plan. And that, and that business plan has served these interests, these, this partnership very, very well, but it's, it's not served the public. Um, so I think people need to understand that um, wow. it, 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 it's very easy to be puzzled. It's like, well, we know that there have been vaccines historically that have been very effective, that have really, really prevented infection from terror. I mean, you think of tetanus. I mean, I think tetanus is probably about the worst way to die you can imagine. I mean, it is an agonizing death. So there, you know, the tetanus vaccine has been a tremendous success for mankind. But what we're looking at is not like the tetanus vaccine. This is a completely innovative, novel thing. They've only been, I mean, they have been working on it for a while, but it's not more than about 15 years. So this is, as Dr. McCullough wrote in his op-ed for The Hill, this whole thing was a big gamble. But instead of a kind of a drunk guy in a casino pulling on a slot machine lever, it's a very large, well-capitalized organization that collaborated and and, um, conspired to make collectively this massive global gamble. And the the thing I want to emphasize is that sounds like, you know, an Ian Fleming novel, like a James Bond novel, you know, where the bad guys are perched up in their alpine, you know, specter is meeting at the round business table, you know, in some high alpine retreat. But you know, on the other hand, uh, these guys meet every year in Davos, Switzerland. Uh, Klaus Schwab looks like Ernst Blofeld. Um, Bill Gates is some kind of nerdy autistic guy. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, it's almost it's almost like they're modeling their organization after after Spectre. I don't know if anyone remembers the early Bond <laughs> films, but um, so that's what they have done. And it's not a theory. Um, they themselves have published their plans. They videotaped their, their pandemic planning yep. um, exercises. 
Um, the relationship between the Gates Foundation and Anthony Fauci is, 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 is explicit out in the open. They themselves have spoken about it. So this doesn't require um, a theory or a hypothesis. Um, the, the reason why it may sound strange and outlandish is simply because the Anderson Coopers of the world don't report it. Right. Mm -hmm. if you turn on your television and you're watching Anderson Cooper, he's not telling you to look at these things, at these institutions, at these documents. He's just interviewing Bill Gates and nodding his head. Mm -hmm. Yes. And even even Fox News, you know, uh, if you, so if you want to look at the antidote to CNN, what would you say? That would be Fox News has not. When I and, and again, we try to watch all the news sources, the three of us, so that we can see how it's being, how the narrative is being told on each. I am shocked at how Fox News has not covered this. I mean, you've got the Tucker Carlson's of the world who will, but you don't, you don't. I don't know if he has. McCullough, you need to slip that in next time you're on. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I want to I I say a word about Tucker Carlson. Um, <laughs> and then th this isn't to flatter him, but he has to work within a corporate structure. He is not the boss of Fox News. He is a very important journalist and newsreader on Fox News. But that guy has done an absolute yeoman's job with, within this crazy structure of American corporate media. Given that he doesn't have executive power, I think that he and Laura Ingram, have, yeah. they have done a great job at, at doing everything in their power to tell Agreed. the truth about this. Um, so I, I mean, I, I really believe that the American, I mean, I, I'm now I'm, I'm, I seem like I'm sort of swelling and sentimental, but I, I really think that Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram, Joe Rogan, um, I mean, there, there are a few guys who have really, really stood up as journalists yeah, to, yeah, defend, yeah. To, to defend the U.S. Constitution. Yes. Uh, Let me just say that, you know, I've been on ABC News and, and uh, Newsmax, OAN, Victory Channel, Fox, uh, so many programs. And uh, I, I do agree with John that there is a corporate media structure. And even as a frequent contributor, uh, it, it, you know, where my relationship with the media is, uh, is an important one. There are meets and bounds. There is a sense of feeling out the producers on each story. There is research in each story. And every so often, you know, I'm asked, uh, you know, do I think this is a story of interest or what, you know, what is going to be topical? Some people actually follow my Twitter feed. That's what Dan Bongino mm -hmm. does. And he follows, oh, Dr. McCullough said this, uh, you know, let's bring him on. So does uh, Chris Saucedo at Newsmax. Um, but uh, I agree with John that, you know, there is a, uh, there are lines that have to be followed as things evolve. Remember the counter argument to everything. The counter argument to everything is that free speech is okay, except when someone shouts fire in a crowded theater, right? And so this idea of free speech is okay until the point where you could harm public health through free speech. And that's the line that we're on. This is the genesis of the truth uh, ministry and everything else. This idea that through free communication, harm could occur. And, 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 and actually we're seeing that in many ways, many would argue because of free speech, 
we're seeing harm executed through the propaganda campaign right. of the federal agencies, of the major media, what have you. Now they would say on the other side that there's harm that's coming through those who are casting doubt on the vaccines. Yep. That, that vaccine hesitancy is a bad thing. Uh, some would say vaccine hesitancy or discernment is a good thing. So you can see how we're in this now, this complex three-dimensional type of sets of, 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 of issues. Right. Yes, yeah, it goes against uh, community guidelines. But it seems <laughs> like- that I would just like to add, add to that, if, if, I'm, if I may. Uh, excuse me, go, no, go no, ahead. Go ahead, go ahead, John. Well, I, I was going to say, I mean, um, Dr. McCullough has done an admirable job of, of outlining the complex problem that has faced every human society since the beginning of time. I mean, you know, we don't want um, representations of reality made, uh, particularly from an authoritative position that are going to inspire or compel people to do irrational, harmful things. Um, but the problem is, and our founding fathers recognized this, and, and um, people who were involved in policy and, and, and politics 200 years before our founding fathers recognized, there is no silver bullet solution to the problem that Dr. McCullough just outlined. I mean, there's always a risk. If humans are free to think to communicate, to state their opinions. You know, knowledge is always limited. It's always fragmentary. It's people think, oh, now we know everything. You know, in the year 1957, the American Medical Association knew everything. Well, no, they didn't. I would argue that they knew almost nothing. Um, I mean, it, it's, it's, this is, Nature is so complex, so we're always discovering, we're always learning. So what the founding fathers, and particularly Madison, they drew the conclusion, the only practicable solution is to let speech be free. There's going to be risks, but ultimately through discussion, mm -hmm. through sharing of observation, through sharing of opinion, the better, more real approximation of, of what's really going on will ultimately be arrived at. If you assert authority and orthodoxy and say no other, no other reality or no other opinion is allowed, then you, you are freezing our understanding at a particular moment in, in time. And that we know the, the, the data, it's empirically established Dictatorships that have limited the freedom of speech are miserable places, they're underdeveloped, their economies, their knowledge base, their, their ability to improve the lives of their people have been completely frozen and retarded. Countries, nations which advocate, encourage the free exchange of ideas are prosperous, developing, they make mistakes along the way, but ultimately they get to, this is very well understood and has been understood for centuries. The standard of you can't yell fire in a crowded theater, that standard pertains to, by doing that, you could cause a stampede that could result in immediate 
and predictable harm, people getting trampled, you know, people's getting their neck broken or their skull crushed or asphyxiated right then and there. That is a, as Oliver Wendell Holmes' standard of a clear and present danger. So we're not talking about a clear and present danger. We're talking about a public policy debate. And um, this censorship, the, if the American people can do anything as a result of what you ladies are doing and, and our other discussions, it would be to put an end to censorship. This is yes. cancer that, that, that needs to be expunged from the body politic. I'm hoping that Elon Musk is, is you know, he's going to he's going to be the guy with all of his dough that kind of mans the barricade and leads the way forward on this thing. I, I hope so. Hey, this does segue. Holly, did you want to say something? Because I want that what he what John just said kind of segues into one of my que one, one no, question. No, I was just going to echo that there has to be an open forum for discourse, public discourse for us to find the truth. You, right. you can't discover the truth if you can't look at the full spectrum of ideas and opinions. That has to happen. Go ahead. Well, and Dr. McCullough has said numerous times, you've asked the question, why haven't we been having weekly or monthly meetings? Why have they not asked? Why has the White House, why hasn't Fauci, why hasn't Walensky, why aren't they talking like you did, like Dr. Corey did, like all these other physicians have done with all the and doctors around no the world debate. and, no no, and everybody's asked for them to come and they don't show up. Well, well I mean, listen, we did on January 24th, we had COVID-19, a second opinion. Uh, Ron right. Johnson led the Senate hearing. I co-moderated it. You know, we had a dozen or so clinical experts. Oh yeah, experts. We had people who had testified at the FDA I mean, we're talking, we had the real deal. We had nurses, patients, attorneys, and you know, none of the public health officials showed up. None of the other senators showed up. Now, fortunately, the press did. You know, in my field in cardiology, uh, on a reasonably routine basis for a problem, a difficult problem, we have what's called Bethesda meetings. We meet in Bethesda, Maryland. It's a private physicians, academia, pharmaceutical companies, the FDA, and the National Institutes of Health. And we meet, and we actually have an agenda, and there are presenters. I've you know, been involved in these. And we go through a problem in order to have group learning. We haven't had any of that with COVID-19. I think a big problem has been WebEx and the fact that the major scientific meetings still are not happening in person. Doctors are far more afraid of the virus than almost any other profession. And that, is, that is sad and that is scary. Well, and this is the thing that is really troubling, Dr. McCullough, is the pervasive indoctrination of the medical community where people are hearing some of what you're saying or what John's writing about or what we're saying on the podcast, they're going back to their physician and saying, hey, I heard. And even though you can back it up with science and we use your science and other peer-reviewed science to, to bring to their attention because we document everything we say with, we try to bring everything with facts that can be substantiated. Their doctors are calling us crazy, calling you the quack. Th this You're saying there's no evidence to back it up <laughs> and and they seem very clueless and that and i think that that's a question we want to we want to ask you guys because what can the average american do that's not a best-selling author that's not a physician that is not in academia that's not podcasters what can the what can our listeners do today to help make a difference in how we're going to handle not just COVID, but perhaps how we're going to exist as Americans moving forward. 
And also, do you foresee coming into like on piggybacking on that question? Foresee what do you foresee for the rest of 22? Are they going to come back with the mask mandates? Are we going to be? I mean, is this going to ramp up again? We need to be prepared. Well, let me give some pointers. I think each and every patient, no matter whether they've taken the vaccine or not, should ask their doctor several questions. Uh, you know, cases are on the rise. They should ask their doctor, are you ready to treat me for COVID-19? Are you prepared now to do that? And if the answer is no, say, well, who do you refer to? Remember, doctors have a duty to treat or they have a duty to refer, but they just can't say no. So I think each doctor should, in a sense, be put on notice that uh, they're going to be called upon to treat COVID-19. The second issue, again, whether or not someone's taken uh, the vaccines or not, or uh, the issue is going to be, should they take one of these or should they take a booster? They should ask the doctor, say, doctor, you, you, you know, my perception is the vaccines aren't safe enough for me. I'm concerned about that. Uh, and ask the doctor to make the case that the vaccines are safe. You know, when there's official warnings for heart damage and blood clots and neurologic, you know, these are not controversial. The FDA says these things happen. And if the doctor tries to make the case that it's safe, or if the doctor tries to make the case that COVID-19 is a bad illness, and that you should take the risk of heart damage and blood clots because of COVID-19 illness, you can simply say, listen, that's a, that's a patient choice issue. I'd rather take my chances getting treated for COVID as opposed to take a blood clot or heart damage. Um, but I think that these critical COVID conversations have to happen. Right now, patients are going to the office and they're going in for other problems. And the doctor says, have you taken the vaccine? Mm -hmm. and the patient then feels really uncomfortable. And then what, what they're happy, the doctor says, well, you really should take it. And the patients say, I'm out of here. And they, they want to be a patient of mine. Well, let me tell you, I'm overloaded. I can't take care of the whole country. Patients are going to have to bring their doctors out of formation. I went to see my primary care doctor. He asked me this year, he said, did you take the vaccine? I said, no, I already had COVID in 2020. It was too late for the vaccine, right? Remember, the vaccine is only if you have not had COVID. That's the only indication the FDA has for it. He looked at me kind of dumbfounded. I said, yeah, it's too late. I already had COVID. And then I said, anyway, it's not safe enough for me. I've made that determination. If you've determined that it's not safe enough for you, full stop, full stop. And then see what the doctor says. The doctor needs to hear patients who have concluded that the vaccine is not safe enough for them. Think about this. The majority of doctors took these vaccines with no critical thinking, with no discernment. Mm -hmm. oh, they've actually taken it. Most of the doctors have taken the risk. And so they think in their mind, listen, I took the risk. You should take the risk too. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the psychology going on. Yes. Wow. Um, I have a question too. Um, those are great pointers because yeah. that is one of the things is, is just turning it around to the doctor, ask the questions and prove it to me, like prove me wrong, you know, and, and they wouldn't be able to. But one thing I was going to kind of circle back when we were talking about the free speech and like, and us having the freedom to make our own decisions and in our country and everything, like, what are y'all's thoughts on? Well, I mean, I probably know what your thoughts on, but can you speak to like the who? Like when you're talking about the Gavis in, 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 in Switzerland, like that they are meeting May, is it May 27th, 22nd, something like that. And it's a terrible thing that when we talk about pre-planned that the Biden administration had submitted this in January of this year 
right? That's going to basically take our sovereignty away, put everything into the who, which again, Bill Gates is what second bit largest donor to the who is that right? That's correct. Um, um, Germany is the largest contributor. Um, Bill Gates is, is the second. Isn't that, isn't that remarkable? Irony. Uh, yes. Well, so what, what we, you know, we get to kind of the conclusion of our, of our first book. We have another book that, that's in the works that focuses more specifically on the vaccine. Um, but we, as we get to the conclusion of our book, Dr. McCullough and I um, met here in Dallas. We spent a Sunday together just before Christmas, and we reviewed all of the evidence. And, and, and what, what we concluded is that this centralized public health institutional structure um, is really the perfect way um, to impose global governance. Mm -hmm. So we believe the evidence supports the clear, I would call it, it's more than a hypothesis because they, the, the, the actors have made it very clear. The aspiration is for a global governance in which every man, woman, and child on earth, regardless of their citizenship, the, the national jurisdiction in, in which they live, all of humanity will fall under the command structure of a global governance. And really the best way to do that, I, I, I think it's analogous to empire building, a, a central command structure that rules all of humanity, not, not just the people within a certain territory. So there, there are um, uh, historical examples of this in the West, the Roman Imperium, being the most notable. I mean, at one point, I think under the Emperor Hadrian, Rome ruled an enormous part of the known world. I mean, all of Europe, the Mediterranean, much of the Middle East, North Africa. Um, and so we, we believe that what, what these empire building institutions that are headquartered in Switzerland um, have, um, have concluded is that the way to rule mankind is through public health mandates that are uniform across every and and watch watch how this lockstep actually unfolded very very quickly. You'll notice that when SARS-CoV-2 started to spread, the Prime Minister of of the United Kingdom, the President of the United States maybe to a lesser degree, maybe had some dissenting ideas, but they all, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, I mean, these are countries that are strung out all over the globe. They all started reading from the exact same scripts. Yes. Who gave them that script? Yeah. Um, it, it was a centralized command structure that was directing this entire orchestrated campaign. And so when I saw that the World Health Organization, which I think is just a front organization for some of these other actors that we've discussed, when they're circulating this, this, this proposal for an international treaty, I immediately perceived, well, this is just the culmination of, of what these guys have, have been attempting to do you know, since, since day one. The problem with the United States is um, the United States is a sufficiently powerful nation to where our executive would not have to follow this. I mean, even, even if we sign the treaty, 
if we decided that the execution of it was being done in a dubious or, or, or suspicious way, we could pull out of it and there would be some possibility of being sued under international law. So I don't, I don't think it's necessarily the end of the world. The, 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 the problem is it's such a terribly worded document. It leaves so much room. Whenever you read a legal agreement, you know, pay attention not only to what's in it, but what was left out. I mean, if it leaves all kinds of room for interpretation, then rest assured that who's ever executing it is going to interpret it exactly as he wants. Mm -hmm. So the, my, my concern with this is, is that um, the, the current executive of the United States is, is probably not in a very good position to be correctly interpreting this. Um, but that's, that, that's a topic, another topic for, for, for a different conversation. Um, but I think this, this aspiration of, of, of global health governance of mankind um, is, what, is what we're looking at here with the story. Yeah, and it's concerning. It's concerning, I think, for those of us who have been, who are aware of what has been going on within our own country, something that I don't think we thought could happen, that we would be told we could not go out without a mask, that we couldn't hold our jobs without a vaccination. I don't think we saw this coming. And then when you tell us that the United States may give away, may comply with a global initiative to control how we're responding to viruses or sickness or how we can operate in our personal health, it is highly concerning. And we've gotten multiple messages over the last two weeks from our viewers and listeners saying, guys, what do we do about this? I mean, do you guys have suggestions? Do we reach out to our senators, our legislators and say, is that, is that your best advice right now to say, hey, go do something about this? And can we do anything? Like, even if we do reach out, can our, can our legislators do something about it? <laughs> you know? And will they? And will they? <laughs> can voice their opinion. Uh, you know, all healthcare is always under the fiduciary relationship, the relationship between the doctor and the patient. It's administered locally. Uh, the greatest concern is that the World Health Organization would have the authority to declare a world emergency, which would yeah. have ripple effects across travel, uh, work, and other governmental agencies. Uh, the World Health Organization can be, uh, to me as a doctor, no more than a data analytic unit. They don't have the competency to make medical decisions or that they simply, they just don't have it. And so uh, it needs to be strongly resisted uh, you know, all healthcare is different. Can you imagine them trying to declare uh, the same health emergency in uh, the Congo as it is in Manhattan? Yeah. I mean, the world is a very different place, region to region, and uh, we should reject homogenization. And now's the time for people to really step up for health freedom. If Americans can't unite around any issue, they can unite around freedom. It's very important. Yes. You is. think so. You would think. I, I would add. I would add to that. There, there is there is this very specific part of this WHO mechanism that I think people aren't familiar with. But I think if they did understand it, it would be very illuminating. So what, what these big pharmaceutical companies do is is they start modeling the next pandemic, whether it's a virulent influenza, a, a, a coronavirus, some, some kind of infectious disease that moves rapidly across national borders. They start developing products to 
and now it's really almost exclusively focused on on vaccines. But 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 he, here is the the game in this thing. Um, emergent infectious disease. You've got a product that you've already have in development um, because of your modeling that this is going to come. Who declares an international emergency? Emergency authority is invoked in the national governments um, in the United States and Berlin and London. That then triggers this emergency countermeasure funding so that you, pharmaceutical company, say, well, as luck would have it, we've had something in development and we, ah. think, we think it's the solution. And we think that you, the executive in Congress and whoever the executive authority is, should buy $70 billion of it. Right. You know, it may or may not work that well. I mean, we think the vaccine will prevent infection and transmission. I mean, it kind of looks like sort of maybe it could kind of, if all things turn out well, sort of prevent infection. So how about U.S. government giving us $20 billion? After all, the WHO just declared that there's an infectious disease that's coming our way like a foreign army. So there's immense, immense room in all of this structure for, for fraud such as the likes that humanity has never seen. I'll add one thing to that. And I'm sorry, I can just pontificate forever. But there's a, there's, a, there's a strong analog between what Dr. McCullough and I call the biopharmaceutical complex and what President Eisenhower called the military industrial complex. There is such a strong parallel here. I think it's a very illuminating analog. I think your, your, your listeners should really start thinking about this. Our founding father, James Madison, he, he understood if we allow an entrenched military interest, a standing Navy and a standing army to establish itself in this country, this complex of military interests will actually actively seek entanglements and conflicts in order to be the beneficiary of more and more investment from the United States government. Oh, you know, Napoleon is invading uh, or trying to invade England. You know, we need to build more ships, give us more money to build more ships, more naval bases. So our founding fathers recognized this danger. Now, when Eisenhower left office in 1961, he gave a farewell address in which he warned the American people, we need to be very careful about the rise of what he called a military industrial complex. It's, it's entrenched interest in the defense industry, the weapons industry, the intelligence agencies who have an interest in maintaining conflict and maintaining a state of enmity with other countries. Why? If we had peace, if there were other solutions to this problem, then right. all of this money would quit flowing within the complex to its beneficiaries. Exactly. So, I mean, Eisenhower was hardly some kind of pacifist guy. I mean, he was the 
the supreme allied commander in World War II. He was a military guy. Um, so, you know, when you have that kind of warning from a military guy, I mean, it's a good idea to pay attention. Um, so I, I think we have a similar uh, dynamic going on in the military, oh, yeah. excuse me, in the biopharmaceutical complex. For sure. Agreed. And that's what we, we thank you both for helping bring attention to this, because while this is still a government that is, you know, for the people, by the people, it is time for the people to push back against any initiatives that are trying to in any way you know, direct our steps, which we know they've been doing. You know, if you want to follow the money trail, that's you're going to follow it to the power. One of the reasons why the United States is so powerful in the world has been because of our, you know, military and our money. And that's getting eroded right now in what in what we're living through. And it's being, it's, 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 being it's being misdirected and misplaced, not in the service of the citizens but in the service of special entrenched interests. That's the problem. And mm -hmm. until and unless all of us who know better speak up and, and in your conversations, you don't have to fight with people. You don't have to be unkind, but to ask people if they know, are you aware? Do you know this? It is important because the media is not going to tell the story for us, at least not right now. It is up to us to say what we know and ask questions and to think. Because if we don't, my concern is this country is not going to look like it has um, mm -hmm. because our, our, it does in, in incrementally eat away at our freedoms. And certainly like with the military industrial complex keeps us in wars for decades, right? We don't want to be entrenched in this medical um, tyranny that we seem to find ourselves in, in in certain situations or have in the last two years. Is I, think, I think the solution um, is ladies like you um, who, who um, have not only an interest in your own families and your own children, but are interested in your state and, and, and the country to communicate with each other, keep doing what you're doing, do it is, I have written a Senator before it's, it's worth do, And there are, a few honorable senators. Ron Johnson has been a great guy. So, you know, yeah. support, communicate, share, tell your you know, senator or your congressman, this is what. And so there needs to be this grassroots communication, which, which I think you're doing. Um, so just keep up the good work and, and, and encourage other, other ladies to do the same. It, it, Dr. McCullough's observed this. It, it, it is notable how men have had a narrowness of focus in this. It's actually been far more so women who have been alert to this. Um, I, and maybe y'all have a theory about that. That mama bear. Yeah. You poke the bear. <laughs> you don't. It's, I think it is the maternal instinct. It's very protective whether you're a mother or not, is a female. Right. And, and we still believe in the genders and sex is on the podcast. Um, and women's so, intuition. We, we follow that science straight to the XX and XY chromosomes. And we feel that in, in the way we are made, there is a, a nurture is, a, is also a protector. You know, you think of the men as being the defenders and the strength, but women are the first to know something's off. Yeah, it's, very, it's, it's harder to fool a woman, I think, than it is a man. We have that innate, something isn't right. Mm -hmm. now, let, right. Let, let, let me tell you where our weaknesses are, though. Our weaknesses 
our emotions kick in and fear kicks in. What happens to the brain under fear and emotion? It stops thinking. Mm -hmm. so, so part of what we're trying to help our women do is don't let fear set in. Don't get so far into your emotions that you stop critically thinking and paying attention to the voice that's telling you, you know what women are also, we tend to be kind and we don't want to hurt feelings. Mm -hmm. but we can be in an elevator with a man that gives us the creeps and we won't tell him to get off the elevator. Right. Yeah. I mean, and that, that is, the, that's something about women that we have a problem with is we don't want to be rude, but, but if a woman gets scared enough, she'll fight, she'll mm -hmm. fight. And that's where we are. I know the three of us, we're at the fighting phase now where we are not going to sit and sit still and look pretty anymore. We're, <laughs> we're here to do something about it. You know, that's how we feel. So well, keep, keep up the good fight. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's uh, apart from guys like Dr. McCullough and his colleagues, I, I have to say um, our sex is particularly the moneyed class. I, I know a lot of rich guys um, in Dallas. Um, they, they just, they don't seem to be, they don't seem to be really alert to how much danger our, our constitutional republic is in. I, there's, there's a kind of, well, you know, as long as I'm making a pile of dough every day, um, you know, that, that's a litmus test that all is well. Yeah. Um, what, I, you know, what I tell rich people is that, you know, that could be taken away from you in one day. Yeah. In one day. And, you know, there was, I think there's more to, you know, when Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Riches are, can be bondage. It is, you can be, you become, you can become sold out to, to that wealth and to that money because it can make you very comfortable. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I feel like I live a life that's very comfortable financially and you can really get complacent. Yeah, and, and I think no. that's where the conviction of and your morality, your values have to kick in and say, wait, wait a minute, not at all costs. I think we all have gotten used to like having the freedom and we don't realize how great that is until it's taken away. And I think that's when you're like, whoa, yeah. we may not have this and our kids may not have this. And that's when you're like, OK, I've got to do something. It doesn't yeah. matter at what, at what cost. It doesn't yeah. matter. Well, yeah. Well, yeah, you know, I was going to say, I've, you know, I've met with, uh, you know, various high worth people, people have reached out to me and invariably what they'll say is they'll say, you know, Dr. McCullough, you keep on doing it. You're doing a great job. But then I'll ask about what, what about you? What have you said? Mm -hmm. That's outrageous. What have you done? And they say, well, you know, I, I really, you know, I really want to stay behind the scenes. What they're really telling me is they think they have too much to lose. Yes. And by feeling like they have too much to lose, they're losing. That's because uh, when this, if this really goes down, let me tell you what, it's not, the little guy is already under the thumb. What the big guy has to lose is those big bank accounts, those big real estate deals, all of those things, if we get under state control, you know, some of these things go all the way to you have state control uh, and control over financial systems, properties, et cetera. Um, uh, you know, they're in trouble. There hasn't been a single very high net worth person that's spoken out saying they don't like what they're seeing. Yeah. Which is, and, and celebrities, we're seeing the same with celebrities. Cancel culture is real. They're very afraid but, to say. But, but no, they're not. It's not that they're canceled. They actually don't make the statements. They don't. Right. Make the right. No, no, yeah, they're afraid of the cancel. But I think they're worried about cancel. They're yeah. worried about being canceled. That's yeah. what I'm saying. No, but they, they behave like they have too much to lose. Even like Kyrie Irving, 
who didn't want to take the vaccine. He didn't really come out and say why he didn't. Um, uh, you, you know, uh, Aaron Rodgers, you know, Djokovic did a little bit, but none of them have taken up a campaign. You know, we need people. This is so important. We need people to take up a campaign. I'll tell you somebody who took up a campaign, Naomi Wolf. Yeah. She's taken up a campaign that this is corruption. And believe it or not, she's teamed up with Steve Bannon. Who would have guessed? Wow. That is great. It's amazing. She's amazing too. Uh, I, I, I think that um, I think that, that that if you study history, what you'll see is that uh, these rich guys, you know, can, not only can they lose the real estate portfolios, they can lose their heads. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, um, you know, things the, the only thing that stands between law and, and, and order and, uh, you know, a, a, a functioning economy and um, is is it's it's law it's it's the us constitution it's what is given us this structure this legal structure in which we can peaceably coexist and and pursue our our, our interests and if that goes down with censorship um, all these dictatorial you know mandates you can't travel you have to wear a mask you, i mean that this is a a, a conditioning of the, of the public in, in the business of compliance, which has a totalitarian spirit. And I think people should look at the totalitarian regimes of the 20th century. You know, it starts with, well, you can't enter the coffee house unless you do this, that, or wear a star of David. Or you start imposing these, these sort of outward compliance things. And then it's like, oh, this is just a passing thing. You know, the government is maybe being a little excessively zealous. Well, then a concentration camp is opened up. Then people start getting knocks on their doors in the middle of the night and, and, and hustled out of their apartments. And, and then, you know, in the Soviet Union, you know, suddenly there's a gulag that's, that's secretly opened up in Siberia with a railroad that's built to the front entrance. I mean, this could happen in the United States. Americans, we think of ourselves as different. We think of ourselves as exceptional. Like somehow I'm an American and that means that, you know, what happens to other people in other places and times could never happen to me. But this is a very naive idea. We're all humans. We're all constrained by the same human nature. Um, This country, and particularly people with resources, they needs to start defending our constitution. If it goes down, we all go down. Mm. Yep. And you know, I think to that point, and and now we can can wrap it up with this: is we cannot think that it is just our military men and women that defend our freedom, and, and that that freedom is sometimes is somehow guaranteed, protected forever. Every generation has had to defend freedom and fight for freedom. It is something that is, is we inherit as Americans, is, the, is our obligation as citizens to fight and stand for that constitution that has certainly been under assault. And again, it goes back and, and, and as you can tell probably John and no, Dr. McCullough knows this, our mission is to empower people to speak up and tell the truth. To have courage. Have some courage. And you know what, guys, one day history is going to be written about all of us in some, whether it's just an obituary or whether you're in the medical history books or whether you're in the literature history books. The reality is what I hope is said about every one of us is that we had some courage and that we followed those convictions even when 
it resulted in some backlash and it's never been yes. more important. Yes, the courage, yes. Uh, the courage to face COVID. Yes, <laughs> that's the name of the book. <laughs> yeah, thank you. So Holly, Kristen, Amy, I wanted to leave you just uh, with two thoughts. One, now you can see why my wife says John Leake is the most interesting man in the world. You can see why <laughs> he says that. Um, and uh, the other thing that I want to say that I think is really a, a, a capstone on this conversation is I recently spent a night with Robert F. Kennedy. So he's the son of Bobby Kennedy. And he said, he said in his family, they taught the children a very, very important point. And they said, the greatest honor you could have would be to be alive at the time of great controversy and to play a role in the resolution of that controversy, of that. Oh, I just got chills. We are alive at a very important point. There is, there is nothing more exciting than to be alive right now and play a role mm -hmm. in what is almost certainly an inflection point in modern human history. I think everyone agree we're on this really important point in time. It didn't happen uh, 10 or 20 years ago, but it's happening now. And there's an opportunity for everyone to play a role. I oh, love that. Love that. Love that. So you true. Su you summed it up so well, Dr. McCullough. Thank you, John. Thank you for coming on. We are reading the book. And Y'all go get the book. Go get it. Amazing. I can't wait. And and let's leave them. It's courage to face covid.com. You can go buy it right there. Of course, it's also on Amazon, but I think go to go to their website to get it. And certainly leave a five-star review after you're done because we know it's going to be worthy of that five-star review. Guys, thank you for helping so many. Dr. McCullough, whatever happens in time, you will, you are our hero. You are a hero <laughs> for us. And we thank you. And John, thank you for your heroic part in telling the story and helping people know what, what's going on and how to pay attention to everything. So thank yes. you. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Thank you so you. much. Thank you, ladies. All right, guys. We'll see you.